Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 10th, we're studying Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Paul travels to Athens, a city full of idols. In the Areopagus there, Paul proclaims the true God, the God who created all things, and the God who raised Jesus from the dead. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, thanks for having me again. As we get started, let's talk a little context. We're in the end of Acts 17 today. What should we know about the context of the book of Acts, where Paul is, where he's headed as we start this text today? Yeah, of course, uh, you know, the book of Acts is, is named that because the Acts of the Apostles, it's the story of the early church and uh, and the apostles preaching and the result of their preaching, the, the, the persecution that they undergo and so forth. In the early part of uh, this chapter, in chapter 17, you have uh, Paul and Silas, first of all, in Thessalonica, and uh, Paul does what he usually does, uh, showing how Christ goes into the synagogue, shows how Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And the outcome of that is either people uh, hear the word gladly, and they accept it and they believe. Um, and you had some people that did that, but then you have the others that uh, do not believe it. In fact, uh, they become violent at Thessalonica, and they, they get together kind of an angry, angry mob, and decide to attack the, the house of Jason, which is where the um, where they're staying at. And then uh, after that, Paul and Silas go to Berea, uh, and they go into the synagogue to preach there. Uh, and you have a different reception there. You have some Jews there at the synagogue that are actually receptive to Paul's word, and they, they actually listen to the preaching, and they they do what anybody should do when they hear preaching. They examine it according to the scriptures. Uh, but then the Thessalonians find out uh, that uh, the that Paul and Silas are in Berea, and they decide to come up and stir uh, trouble there as well, and um, and so that ends up with Paul temporarily parting company with Silas and Timothy and going to uh, Athens. It's interesting that uh, every time there's people stirring up trouble, it's never actually it's Paul that always gets blamed for stirring up trouble, but he's never actually the one stirring up trouble, uh, and that's probably the. That's probably something to uh, to be said for uh, Christians today as well. I think Christians are often accused of stirring up trouble, and maybe we do sometimes, but uh, more often than not, I think it's the fact that uh, people are reacting to what Christians are saying in a very negative way, and, and we see that happening in chapter 17 here. Mm, right. Now, he's headed to Athens, and as you pointed out, he's he's by himself at this point. Sometimes we, we talk about Paul's missionary journeys. This is his second one. But for the most part, he is not all by himself. It seems that he is by himself in Athens, that, as you, you mentioned, Silas and Timothy are not with him. They're, he's waiting for them to come, hoping that they will, and they end up coming back to him in Corinth, as we'll see in the, the next chapter. But here he's, he's by himself in Athens. So he's traveled pretty well south 
down to Athens in there in Greece from Berea. We find him there in, in chapter 17. And, and just, and we'll read the text here in a moment, but what's his reception going to be like in Athens, at least what Luke records for us? Seems a little bit unique among his travels. Yeah, you know, Paul does go to the synagogue there, uh, and he does talk to some of the Jews that are there at Athens. But most of his interaction here is with the is with the pagans, and of course, we we associate, um, you know, we talk about mythology, uh, and a lot of that comes out of the uh, comes from the Greek mythology, the, the system of gods that the Greeks have, and and that primarily is really what uh, Paul encounters is is the Greek um, uh, paganism that's there as well as the various philosophies that exist among the Greek pagans that are there. And those are the people that he ends up uh, primarily discussing with as he's, he's kind of on this, it almost kind of seems like he's on a, uh, just passing through Athens. It doesn't seem like it's part of his plan to even be there, but, uh, but he's there kind of temporarily. And while he's there, he decides to go ahead and um, uh, kind of observe what's going on there. And he sees the opportunity to, uh, to preach the word of God to the people there as well. Well, let's jump into the text. We are in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 21 of the text. The rest of the text will primarily be Paul's sermon there in the Areopagus. So Pastor Vandercook, he comes to Athens, as you said, he, he seems like he's mostly passing through, just kind of stopping over. And he's provoked when he sees what's there. What What is he seeing there in Athens? Why is he provoked in this way? Yeah, he sees a city full of idols. Uh, and Probably on top of that, while it doesn't doesn't explicitly say it in the text, he certainly sees all the temples that are built uh, to the various gods that are there uh, among the, the Greek pantheon of gods. And so uh, he sees all of that, uh, and he recognizes the fact that he's dealing with a group of people that are, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, clueless, uh, that they just don't have any idea. They've not been exposed to the one true God. Uh, and so, and, and that obviously becomes clear from the people's response to his preaching a little bit later on. Uh, but, you know, he starts out with the Jews, but then it kind of moves on into the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers after that. So he's in the marketplace. He sees that the city is full of idols, and he's provoked by this. This this strikes me, and, and I wonder what your thoughts are. I was trying to think of this in in our terms today. Should Paul visit, say, Smithville, Texas, or maybe we'll talk about Little Rock, because Little Rock is a slightly bigger city than Smithville is. What what would he see? What would he recognize? What what would provoke his his spirit today, do you think? Yeah, right. Um, you know, whenever you come into a town, especially a bigger city is probably a better example, I guess, just because of that. 
Uh, but you, you come into a bigger city and you see you see large structures, large buildings all over the place. And, um, you know, uh, it, at Pentecost, we read of the, uh, at least in the historic lectionary, we read of the, uh, the historic one-year lectionary, we read of the Tower of Babel every year. And what were what were they trying to do with the Tower of Babel? They were trying to build this tower up into the heavens to uh, to make a name for themselves. And you see uh, kind of the same thing, I think, as you as you drive through our cities today. You see big skyscrapers, and and why do we have these big skyscrapers? Well, I guess on the one hand you could say, well, we've got we've got businesses that need office space, and I guess there's something to that. But at the same time, there's always this desire to have them be bigger and bigger and bigger and then you 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 drive through a town and what are the what are the other structures that strike you you see like the uh the sports stadiums all of a sudden and you see very quickly what is the thing that is most valued here what is the thing that we care the most about um and while of course there's not anything uh necessarily evil about sports i love sports a lot i i, I love watching um, basketball and football and baseball and things like that. But these things have their proper place and they can easily become the thing that is uh, the thing that we care the most about, that we fear, love and trust in above anything else. Uh, the thing that occupies all of our thoughts all the time. And so as you drive through a town, uh, yeah, you may see some church steeples around and things like that. That would be nice. But uh, perhaps I think in our modern cities today, probably the thing that stands out the most is going to be things like skyscrapers and things like sports stadiums. And, uh, and that could certainly provoke somebody who had never been there before to think the most important thing to the people here must be this, uh, you know, whatever that thing is. And so uh, Paul could certainly, you know, as he comes into Athens, his spirit is provoked because he looks around and what does he see? He sees idols everywhere. He says, well, I can see what these people's God is as I come into this town. I think that's a, a worthy reflection on our parts today. Uh, think about, you know, your own town, where you live. And sometimes it's easy to become blind to those things because, you know, you drive by them every day when you go to work. You see those skyscrapers or those buildings or maybe the, the billboards might be another indicator of what, what does yeah. this place value. And we can become blind to those things and not recognize Again, as you said, not that it's inherently it has to become an idol, but the way that these things can become idols and we lose that sense of, I don't know if, if we should be indignant, but we, we lose that sense of, hey, look, this is evidence of idolatry right here in the place where I live. How great a need is there for me as a Christian to be about sharing that good news because I know who the true God is. I think sometimes when we just you know go, go by it every day, we may lose that sense of, no, there there is something going on here, and the gospel is actually what needs to be proclaimed. But that Paul very clearly recognized when he steps into Athens here. Yeah, and on top of that, just to kind of reflect on the the Christian angle there a little bit of uh, churches, I mentioned offhandedly you, you might you might see, especially as you go through some of our older cities. I'm thinking primarily like up in the Midwest, driving through some of those older cities that uh, you see huge churches and and unfortunately a lot of times these huge churches are not very full anymore mm -hmm. but you at least see the fact that at least in our history we had this emphasis of we're going to build something that people are going to look at and say clearly god and his word are important to these people because look at the look at the effort and energy that they spent on 
putting this house of God together. Uh, you know, it's, and so, I mean, architecture becomes a witness there um, that, uh, that perhaps is something that is, that is not as prominent anymore as we're, we're, we're more uh, interested in, um, uh, what is it, uh, function over form, I guess, you know, sometimes. Sure, sure. And even here in Smithville, I remember the first time we drove into town after I received the call here, just the way that we drove into town down the main road that goes through town, we drove by every single other Christian denomination until we got to Grace Lutheran Church. Just the if we'd come the other way, Grace Lutheran would have been the first. So you I mean you can see yeah. in in Smithville that evidence, but as you said, where are the people on Sunday morning? Are the parking lots full? Are the pews full? That that's another indicator that even if there is the architecture, again, something for us to to take a look at. As we think about the places we live, how does how does Paul's approach here as he looks around Athens, or or is there is there a uh, an example for us here when we think about our Christian witness? Well, I think it gives him a starting point because it at least helps him open up the conversation because it seems like he, he's approaching it from uh, he he first of all does a little bit of people watching. He sees what the people are doing. He sees what appears to be, at least by his sight, the most important thing in town. And that at least gives him something to start with as he talks to these people. And we see that as his sermon goes on, especially. But you can see that he's kind of saying, okay, I see what's going on here. I've assessed the situation. Now I'm going to go into the synagogue and I'm going to talk to the people about this. I'm going to find out, you know, what is what is this thing? Why why are these idols all over the place? You know, and of course we don't have that conversation for us here in the text, but I'm just kind of imagining how that would have gone as he's in the synagogue uh, talking to them. Now, of course, as he's talking to the Jews in the synagogue, his approach is going to be different than talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics a little bit later on there uh, at the Areopagus. But uh, you know. There at the synagogue, he, of course, could uh, get perhaps more more specifically into Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures, obviously, and things like that. Whereas when he goes to talk to the Stoics and the Epicureans, it's more of, um, you guys don't even know the word of God. You don't know the scriptures at all. So let's start off by trying to figure out what's going on with this, this uh, unknown God here that you have this altar built to. Yeah, he does go to the synagogue. We shouldn't miss that. It's just that Luke doesn't record much of what happens there. He really focuses his attention on what Paul does in the marketplace and then in his sermon in the Areopagus. If you want to see what he says to the to the Jews, just take a look at the sermon that he preached, say, in Acts chapter 13. That's probably a pretty good example of what he would have been speaking there. Luke focuses first on what happens in the marketplace, which then will lead to a greater audience. And you've been mentioning what Luke says, that the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, both of those groups are drawn to Paul. Who are these two groups? What do they, what do they teach? What's their philosophy like? Yeah, I certainly won't uh, paint myself as an expert on Epicureans <laughs> or the Stoics, but, uh, but the Epicureans, they're, they're kind of opposites of each other um, in a sense. Uh, the Epicureans are those who seek to live uh, life uh, as pleasurable of a life as possible, but not necessarily. I think sometimes when we hear Epicurean, we think that they are um, they're basically hedonists. You know, that's not really what the Epicureans are either, though. Uh, they uh, they do want to live as pleasurable of life uh, of a life as possible, but not to the extreme where their overindulgence in pleasure could result in experiencing pain and discomfort, because 
obviously that's the opposite of pleasure is to be in pain and discomfort. So uh, there's that. And then also probably really important as we especially consider the issue of the resurrection of the dead, um, the, the Epicureans uh, believe that both the soul and the body are mortal. And so therefore there is no afterlife. So they are going to reject the idea of, uh, of the resurrection altogether. Um, the Stoics are those who seek to overcome emotions because emotions to them are seen as being a source of destruction. Uh, and in order to do this, you use fortitude and, and self-control. Um, now, Stoics are not um, completely emotionless, but they, they, they want to make sure that we, um, Stoics always want to try and make sure that their emotions are not basically taking the driver's seat in their life, you know, mm. um, that kind of thing. And uh, Stoics are pantheistic. Uh, so they, they basically believe that God is in everything, uh, you know, um, kind of this idea that creation in and of itself is God, you know, uh, nature is God, that kind of thing. So there's, there's that thing there as well. They resemble a lot of, uh, a lot of the Eastern religions, actually, when you dig into their theology, um, like Hinduism and so forth. So, so yeah, those, that's kind of the, the audience that Paul's dealing with there at the Areopagus, those Epicureans and Stoics there. Uh, obviously, both of them far from Orthodox Christianity. That's right. Uh, but it's um, <laughs> kind of the point here. But, um, you know, that's why especially this idea of uh, the, the resurrection, these strange new things, as they say, um, uh, are, are striking their ears that way, because those are things that are not really part of their, um, of their theological thought process. Mm. It really strikes me how the Epicureans, the Stoics, and, and others who seem to be around as well, they're paying attention to what Paul says. They're they're not just sort of brushing him off. Generally speaking, they are listening to him, and they're it's it's making them wonder about what's going on. There does not seem to be, at least at this point, and I think really as the the text in Athens plays itself out, there doesn't seem to be a really harsh reaction against Paul. There are some who brush him off and mock him, but there's not a real persecution of Paul in Athens as we you know as you pointed out in Thessalonica they they not only chase him out of town but they chase him out of Berea as well that really doesn't seem to be the case here in Athens which i suppose is positive and yet on the other hand there's this disinterest that's still there that that definitely isn't positive i don't it's just an interesting atmosphere paul finds himself here in yeah it is and you know they yeah exactly and and there's a um it's a little bit uh, uh it's at the very end of, of verse 21 where it says all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, you know? So it's kind of this idea that, Oh, they just like to sit around and talk, you know? Mm. Uh, and so on the one hand, yeah, you have a, a general amicability toward, toward Paul, just that they're, they're going to receive and they're going to be friendly. They're going to let him talk. But at the same time, there's also a lot of indifference to what he's saying too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's all they do in Athens apparently is just sit around and, and, and talk without any goal in mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and with that in mind too, you know, they're always looking for something new. And again, we only get this one sermon from Paul. We don't get too much about the results of it. There's a little bit, 
But you, you kind of wonder, even if there is a positive reception there in Athens, how long that will last. I mean, like they're going to hear it. Oh, great. This sounds nice today. But when something else comes along, will they be swayed by that new teaching? I mean, that it just is, yeah, it's a very indifferent sort of attitude that it seems to be portrayed here. I, I wonder, I don't know. What do you think? Is there, do we see some of that still today too? Oh, I think so. I think definitely. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think also we have to, you know, on the one hand, we don't, you're right. We don't know what happens after Paul preaches this word, but we also know that, and just as Paul knows, and we know that, uh, as, as the Lord promises in Isaiah, that, uh, his word does not return to him empty. Mm -hmm. And so anything that Paul does preach, yes, while it may not meet overly receptive ears at the time, uh, you never know when that seed may take root, uh, and grow. Uh, so, you know, certainly we see a little bit of that, a little tiny bit of that at the end of the chapter here. But um, uh, but as far as a uh, short-term thing, yeah, certainly we could see that. And for that matter, too, you could certainly imagine that whenever the, um, uh, as, as the Athenians, if they were to dig deeper into Christian theology, they might find some things that, uh, that, that they don't like, you know, that are going to force them to say, Oh, you mean I can't do this or that thing that I do anymore? Like homosexuality was huge in, in ancient Greece. Um, and they're going to come across a word of God that's going to condemn that. You know, that could certainly cause a lot of them to say, oh, I can't, I can't give that up, you know? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there may be an initial interest in some that may wane once they, they dig a little bit deeper. And there also may be some that, that that seed just lays there on the path and gets snatched up before it ever takes root. But as you said, none of that prevents Paul from going ahead and proclaiming the gospel there. He has that confidence that the word of God will be effective, that the word will do what the Lord yeah. intends. Right. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't do a demographic study first to figure out if this is a good place or not, you know? Sure. Even Well, and even, and it's interesting to see both things because as much as he does pay attention to who his audience is, as, as you've been pointing out, he still proclaims the word of God that, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this when we see his sermon, that there's certainly the differences in the way that he preaches here in the Areopagus and then the way he preaches at the synagogue. And yet it is the same Christ that gets proclaimed in both that confidence in the word of God remains. So it's, I, I don't know. It's, it, you see both sides, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yeah, indeed. So we've been talking about the Areopagus. So what, what is the Areopagus? We've got the Epicureans and the Stoics in the marketplace. It seems like there's a wider audience that's going to be there at the Areopagus. What's that? Yeah, we're probably, uh, probably most people have heard of the name Mars Hill before, whether they know what that is or not, but it's it's the same place as the Areopagus, uh, which is is a hill, uh, obviously, um, a place where uh, the early city of Athens was actually ruled from the Areopagus. Uh, Ares was the Greek god of war, uh, and so the equivalent god, or at least the roughly equivalent god in the Roman uh, 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 in the Roman mythology is the god Mars, mm. uh, and so you know so this is the place where ancient Athens was actually ruled from. Doesn't seem like that's the case anymore at this point in time, uh, but still a place where people like to gather together and discuss philosophy and and so forth. So it is in this context that Paul will preach his sermon. So let's go ahead and read what he preaches. This is Acts chapter 17, beginning now again at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That's the rest of our text that takes us through the end of Acts chapter 17. Pastor Vanderkirk, we got about a minute here before our break. We heard Paul's sermon, and I imagine, well, maybe you don't. I don't know. We do it, Grace. I have my confirmation students do sermon notes. Give me a sermon summary. So can you give me the sermon summary version of this on this side of the break, and then we'll go into detail on the other side? Yeah. The, well, the sermon summary uh, that I would that I would put on this is, Hey, you guys have this God that uh, you say you don't know who he is. I know who he is. Let me tell, let me tell you about him. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one that created everything you see. Uh, and he's different from all of your gods because he's the one that actually creates things. And uh, he's the one that actually uh, is not built with human hands and uh, doesn't have to have, give things, have things given to him because everything belongs to him anyway because he made it all. Uh, and so this is the God that I proclaim to you. And we will see how Paul does that in greater detail on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at Acts chapter 17 with Pastor David Vandercook. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 10th. We're studying Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. 
Pastor Vanderkirk, prior to the break, we read Paul's sermon there at the Areopagus. You gave us your sermon summary version. Let's dig into the specifics. How does how does Paul introduce his sermon? How does he how does he hook his listeners? Well, he kind of goes back to what he was ta- what we were reading about in uh, at the very at the beginning of our time here at verse sixteen that he was provoked. Uh, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. And he zeroes in on this one particular thing, this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Uh, and so he he realizes that, hey, you guys have this whole system of gods that you have, this uh, this multiplicity of gods. Let me, let me show you uh, about this unknown God, because it seems like this altar to the unknown God is is kind of covering their bases. You know, it's like, hey, we've got uh, we've got a God for this, that, and the other thing, but what if we left something out? Let's make sure we build an altar to that one, too, just to make sure that he's not left out or, or she's not left out or whatever. So we have this altar to the unknown God. It kind of made me think of um, how, years ago I was watching a, a, a TV show, and I have no idea what show it was, but the one of the characters was in a was in a hospital chapel, and the hospital chapel had like a um, had this podium, and the podium had this this dial on the top of it that would change the symbol that was on the podium to whatever whatever religion happened to be using the chapel at the time. So there was like a cross on, and you could turn it, and there was whatever symbol they had for Judaism on there, Islam or whatever. I don't remember what religions it was, but he kind of the the character kind of gave it a spin and said, I don't know which one's going to answer my prayer here, but, you know, uh, you know, somebody, if anybody's listening, you know, and that's kind of the attitude, it seems, of this altar to the unknown God. And so Paul shows them the, the or, or gets them somewhere where they, they can see, oh, yeah, we do have this altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, you obviously have a blank space here. Let me fill in the blank for you here, and let me show you who this unknown God is, the one that you can't figure out. You know, and I think I think also the thing that struck me as I was going through this too is that no matter how much in our world we try and come up with a naturalistic explanation for everything um, or a scientific explanation for everything, there's always we get to some point where we hit a dead end. And it's like, I can't explain anything past this though. And it seems like that's the kind of thing that's happening here is that you have these people that are trying to come up with an explanation for everything, but there's this little blind spot that we've got that we can't figure out. Now, in reality, their blind spot is everything. I mean, they're wrong about everything. But Paul's got to Paul's got to start here and move on from that and kind of expand as he goes on. So, yeah, it's he uses that altar to the unknown God really as his, his jumping off point, though. Well, it is striking to me how... He, on the one hand, Luke tells us at the beginning that Paul's Paul was provoked by all of these idols, and yet as Paul begins his his sermon, at at least at large here, he doesn't start with fire and brimstone. He certainly, within the context yeah. of this sermon, he condemns their idolatry, and, and maybe maybe he shows them its fruitlessness and its vanity. But he doesn't he doesn't lead with that. He almost. He almost compliments them here. Oh, look, I see you're very religious. You you love to worship gods. You even love that so much that here's one that you just have, even though you don't know who he is or she is. Let me tell you about him. It, it's striking how he 
again, he he does show them the the vanity of their idolatry, but he he comes at it in a way that he I guess he gains a hearing. I know there's plenty of times where the prophets and apostles are not what you would call winsome, where they just come out and say, "You need to repent or you're going to die." But but Paul has that tactic here where he does invite them to listen in a way that I don't know is maybe more inviting than than other times. Yeah. Well, you know, but I, I think that shows the difference in audience here, too, because, you know, when you talk about the prophets of the Old Testament or the apostles in the New Testament, who are they generally talking to when they're saying repent or die? It's people that should know better. Right. You know, uh, these people, I mean, especially in the Old Testament, you look at the Israelites and it's like you people have the Torah. You have all the information here and still you're rejecting uh, the, the, the word of God. And so. um the difference here is that he's dealing with people that they don't even have that. Uh, they have no idea what the Word of God is, period, what the Scriptures are. Yeah, they may have come across them, I suppose, but uh, there's no evidence that they have any of that. So, yeah, he's not beating them over the head here with it, uh, but he is in an indirect way um, condemning their idolatry, even if he's not doing it outright. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think there's a lesson there for us, too, in how we approach uh, the evangelistic task when we're dealing with people, it, it depends on the person we're dealing with. Uh, you know, um, are they somebody who has any familiarity with the Word of God at all, or are we dealing with somebody who has uh, who has never even heard of Jesus and who He is at all, uh, has nowhere to start from? Mm. You know, and that makes a difference of how we're, how we're going to move on. So, yeah, the the starting place is different. As we said earlier, he's not preaching in the synagogue where he's going to start with, say, Abraham or Moses or David, as we've seen the sermons in the synagogues go so far. Rather, Paul's going to start somewhere else. So here's this unknown God. Let me tell you actually who he is. He's the true God. That takes us to about verse 24. How does Paul begin to reveal this unknown God to them? Well, he starts at the beginning. Uh, you know, it's a good place to start. He starts at the beginning. He goes back to the God who creates. Uh, you know, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who made everything. Uh, so everything that you see here, and even the gods that you've constructed, the idols that you've constructed with your hands, here's the God that actually created all the material substance that you're using to create these gods. Uh, and so, yeah, he goes back to the beginning uh, and shows that. And, and there's something there, too, as he's dealing with, um, and, and I, unfortunately, I don't remember which one it was. Uh, I should have written it down in my, when, when I was putting together notes. Uh, I believe it's the, the Stoics, though, that uh, don't believe that the, the universe has a finite beginning at all. Mm. Uh, and so that would be, that would be kind of a, in a, a way to um, expose their heresy, if you will that they are, uh, that no, the earth did have a beginning, and here is this unknown God, the true God. He's the one who actually made all this stuff. Mm. He's the one that gave it, gave it its beginning. Mm. So he very clearly proclaims the creator, which he will, as, as the sermon goes on, he will use as, you know, you should have known this from the fact that there is this creation. You should have recognized that there is a, a God. Now, as he as he's going here at the beginning, though, it, it seems that he's, he's starting to make that differentiation between the true God and the idols. And he does so based on uh, who serves whom. How, how, what's the difference between the way the, the true God works and the idols work in terms of who serves whom? 
Yeah, you know, obviously with an idol, idols are usually made of wood or stone. They can't move on their own. Somebody has to pick them up and move them. Uh, they can't actually do anything. And so that's that's a key difference is that we have with the true God, one that actually uh, is able to move on his own uh, and is able to do things. And also these uh, all of these pagan religions, well, really every religion outside Christianity is a um, is is a is a uh, is a religion of works. It's always all about how I'm going to please the God, how I'm going to keep the gods happy, and so forth. What I'm doing in order to earn the favor of my God. Whereas the difference with the true God is that He bestows His favor because that's His nature. He wants to be gracious and merciful to us. He wants to give, and so we're the ones on the receiving end. And so it's a different direction altogether. And, of course, this is expressed even in our worship life, that the chief direction of worship is God coming to us, whereas uh, the chief direction in pagan worship is always us to God. What are we doing to keep the gods happy? Right, yeah, the the difference there is that the one true God, he is the one who gives all life. He doesn't need you to give him anything because he's God and you're not. And certainly that does inform our, our Christian worship and, and delineate between what Christian worship is and then this idolatry that's happening there in Athens. If, if, you're, if you're thinking that you can give God something, or if you, you have a God who needs something from you, that that's not the one true God. That's not the creator and the the sustainer of all things as well. I think that that comes through very clearly in in Paul's preaching here is not only that God has created everything, but also that he continues to sustain everything as well. Those two two doctrines go together, I think. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You see you see God's providence in here as well. That's right. So in verse 26 then, Paul Paul talks about that this true God. Now he starts talking about particularly the creation of humanity and different nations. What's there in, in verses uh, 26 and into 27 as well? Yeah, you know, and um, perhaps not the chief point of his sermon here, but definitely something that is applicable to our times and the way that we engage with the world is that uh, Paul very much affirms uh the idea that we are all one race, the human race, uh, here in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. We all came from that one man, Adam, or if you want to go further on, all the, you know, that one man, Noah, as well. Um, but we all have that same um, there. So all of the, gen- the genetic information that's contained uh, in every human being today was contained in that one man, Adam, uh, who was created by God, and all nations were made through him. Um, and again, this um, uh, again, as we look back at Pentecost this past Sunday, with the you know again, I cite the the episode of the Tower of Babel. All the people were of one nation with one language, uh, and we see how then God uh, scatters the people, and we see the creation of the multiplicity of nations from there that came from that. But again, they all have their root in that one man, Adam. And and I think you see as well here, not only, not only that, but the way that the Lord works through history when it talks about the you know allotted periods and boundaries that as nations have, have risen and fallen throughout history, that these things are not just coincidences of history or accidents of time, 
But in fact, the Lord has been the one directing history. And I mean, Paul's showing them within the sermon where that direction is is taking them so that there is there is one God who created all people who are, in fact, one human race with one God over them. And in, in verse 27, the, the purpose that God has behind all of this is that people would seek after him. The Lord wants people to know him. Take us into to what Paul continues there in verse 27. Yeah, he, he wants them to seek him, uh, but, you know, he makes it clear that God's not actually far off in the end. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's God's desire is that people come uh, and, and seek him. Uh, of course, as we know uh, from elsewhere in Scripture, nobody seeks God, unfortunately, because of our, our fallen nature. Uh, doesn't do that, but that was God's hope that that we would indeed do that. Um, but uh, uh, but the reality is that God is is never far from us. Uh, he's not a God that's far off. He's a God that's there uh, with us at all times, uh, always always ready to uh, to hear us and uh, anxious to save us. Now, as Paul continues with that point, in verse 28, there's two quotes that are given, and I I think these are from actually just, they're not quotes from Scripture, but they're quotes from pagan poets, perhaps. What's what's Paul doing when he makes those two quotes there in verse 28? Yeah, he almost, it sounds like Scripture, honestly, when you read it. Well, I guess it is because Paul quoted it now, right? right? But, uh, but, uh, but, you know, in him we live and move and have our being is, is the first one, and then uh, another one for we indeed are indeed his offspring, and I think what Paul is showing there again is that um, there's there's a vagueness about this uh, pagan idolatry, uh, this this pagan religion, and Paul is again showing them how hey your your poets your philosophers they're fishing around for this stuff and they're getting close but here. I'm, I'm going to fill in the blank for you. This God that the poet wrote about, this one that we live and move and have our being, that's Yahweh. That's the true God. Uh, we are indeed his offspring. We're the offspring of the true God, you know, going back to Adam again, to creation. So, you know, again, it's just more of showing them how you guys have this religion and you are, uh, you know, you're not completely... Uh, off base with some of the things you say, you're just uninformed. And so he's 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 showing them here. This is the truth. This is what you're you've been looking for, and you're missing. So far from validating these pagan poets or something like that, he's he's saying, look, you have an incomplete picture, and and here's where you were feeling around to use his language there from 27. You you were feeling around, and you got kind of close. And so take a look at this, but now let me open your eyes. Let me reveal to you through this preaching everything that you actually need to know. So I, I think, I mean, as much as this does certainly give evidence to the fact that people should know that there is a God who created all things just by looking at the world around them, that they still need to have the word preached to them to, the, to reveal who that one true God is. Yeah, that's right. And I think also it gives us an example of uh, how do we handle pagan literature even today? You know, because a lot of the a lot of the classics are are pagan. Uh, we look at mythologies; they're pagan. How do we handle those as Christians? Do we just say, "Oh, well, we we should not pay attention to them because uh, these people were unbelievers and they're of the devil," or can we actually look at them and say, "Okay, these people obviously are 
um, have a false religion, but we can see through their writing how they at least were on the right track. They just didn't get there, you know? And so we as Christians have the full truth that we can add to that, and we can look at these kind of pieces of pagan literature and say, you see, this is an example of how even uh, even people who have never heard the Word of God have uh, have God's law written on their hearts in a sense that they that they see this stuff going on. They can observe creation and they can observe the way that the world works and come to the conclusion at least that there is something here that had to have been created by a higher being. There has to be something that I'm not getting. Uh, and 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 Paul is just filling in that blank for them, and and certainly that's something that we can take as a cue as Christians as well uh, in the way that we uh, live in our world today. All right, I, I think it, it applies not only to the way that we would look at, say, the classic literature from Greek, Latin, and and all of the time like when Paul's living and even before, but even the way that we look at, say, movies today or books today, and and take a look at okay. Maybe this director or this actor is a, an out-and-out atheist, but I, I can see within that movie evidence that, yeah, the natural law is is working on him, that God's law written on, on that person's heart is at work as a way to, you know, again, a handle in which to approach people with who the true God is, to fill in what's missing with that, you know, what they do have, they're feeling that to show them, hey, what's missing? I think it, it works with movies, books, literature, to a certain extent, still today. Yeah, right. I agree. I agree. I think that's definitely something there. Yeah. So as Paul continues, then having quoted these these two poets in verse twenty nine, he starts to to draw his conclusion, and and he begins to to speak about you know what the divine being is actually like, not like these idols, these images that you have here. But, but rather something different. And he's going to start talking about God overlooking times of ignorance, and now's the time to repent. How does, how does Paul start to draw his sermon to a, a climax and a conclusion? Yeah, verse 29 there where he talks about how, how we're God's offspring, so we shouldn't think of the divine being as, as gold or silver or stone or an image that's created by man or something like that. And that kind of, perform, that kind of forms an envelope from uh, earlier on when he talks about um, the difference between um, uh, the true God and idols that we see in like verse 24 and 25. And uh, that talk more about the character of God. This talks about the substance of God a little bit. Uh, but then, yeah, 30, this is where we finally get the call to repentance here. It's a different type of a call to repentance, of course, though, than the, uh, than, than the Jews would have had that he was encountering where it was, uh, hey, you guys, you missed the Messiah, you know, repent of your um, rejection of God's son. You know, this is more of a, uh, hey, you've rejected God altogether. Um, and uh, now it's time to um, believe in the true God and put away all these idols that you have. Uh, so while he didn't start out and, and there's still not really this kind of beating them over the head and, and telling them repent or die or something like that. But he does say, look, there is a finite time coming. And that takes me back to the Stoics again, too, which, which teach that there isn't really an, uh, an end of time. There's no beginning and no end as far as they're concerned when it comes to uh, the created world. Um, but you have this, um, uh, but, but Paul is saying there is a finite ending to the world. 
Uh, and so time is running short. Uh, and so unless you repent, uh, you will not be saved. Yeah, that, that time that is running short is coming to a time of judgment even. He sa- he's very specific that there is a day that is coming. This judgment will happen in righteousness, and it will happen by a man. <laughs> and, and then he says, and by the way, this is the man whom God raised from the dead. How does that really just draw all this to a, a climax? Yeah, we finally get to Jesus there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, specifically to the Son of God. Um, and showing that, uh, you know, there, there is a resurrection here. So, yeah, that, that, well, that really is the climax there, that, that he points out that uh, this man, Jesus, he doesn't call him by name there, but uh, Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, um, and, uh, and he's given the assurance to all who repent that there will be a resurrection because he's raised this Jesus from the dead, this, this one that, that, he, that he appointed was raised from the dead, therefore, we too have that that promise of the resurrection on the last day. Yeah, and although he does not name Jesus here, Luke has told us in, in the lead up to this back in verse 18 that Paul has been preaching Jesus. And so presumably some yeah. of the people who are hearing this particular sermon have heard him talk about Jesus already and know that that's what Paul's talking about or that's who Paul is talking about. And I don't know that we need to assume that that is precisely where Paul's sermon ended right there. I, I like to think, given, again, some of the other preaching we've heard him have here in the book of Acts, that he continued, you know, that and, and maybe Luke, for the for the sake of, I don't know, space or just getting onto the, the reaction, particularly to the resurrection, this is where he, he stops the record of Paul's sermon. But it, it's not hard to imagine Paul continuing here and proclaiming, well, why does it matter that Jesus was raised from the dead? And then, then you do go back to some yeah. of the connections in previous sermons, whether whether a synagogue or not how Paul has proclaimed that because God has raised this Jesus from the dead, that does mean salvation, forgiveness for you who repent and believe. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And and for that matter, too, you know, in, in verse 32, you have the reaction of some of them that say, we will hear, we will hear you again about this. Mm. And, uh, and we don't ever hear, if, there's no recording by Luke of, oh, by the way, Paul went back the next day and talked to them some more about the area, you know, there at the Areopagus or somewhere else, you know. But rather, it's just in, in verse 18, it just starts off with, well, after this, Paul left Athens, you know. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, how long after that? You know, was it was it like literally the next day he's gone? Uh, he never actually went to talk to them again? Or was it, you know, maybe a week later and he went there like every day for the next week and told them more? We, we unfortunately just don't have that information. Mm. It is It is striking in either case, though, that he does get to the resurrection of Jesus such that, you know, even as different as the beginning of this sermon is from what he preaches in the synagogue, he still gets to Jesus. And so maybe it's a a different journey that he takes to get there within the preaching. But regardless, he's Mm -hmm. going to preach Christ crucified and risen. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's astounding that we have uh, some who claim to be Christian today who reject the resurrection whenever it's so prominent in all of the preaching here. I mean, that's the thing that really ultimately distinguishes uh, Christian preaching from uh, from everything else, that's right. is the idea that we have a God who died and rose from the dead. Uh, and, and, and Paul obviously makes that clear in all of his preaching, uh, that it's the, it's the risen Christ. That's the thing that and that's the thing that gets people hung up all the time, too. You know, um, it's the, um, you know, because here it says in 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
uh, you know, they looked at that and they said, this is foolishness. We can't believe that, that nonsense. And they, and they left, you know, mm, yeah. or didn't, weren't going to, weren't going to bother with it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got pretty well three reactions here recorded in these final verses. One is the, the mockery. Uh, the other is, Hey, we mm-hmm. want to hear more. And then I think verse 34 indicates some, it does say some believed. And although it doesn't say it names a couple, it doesn't say too much. I, I think we're, we're safe to, to say that there is a, a Christian congregation that gets started here in Athens. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, that doesn't say how big it is or anything, but, uh, but, you know, the fact that they mention those names, uh, Dionysius and also Damaris, um, the, it's probably, are probably very prominent people in the community. That's probably why they have that mentioned there. So, um, you know, they're, it's not just, um, not, not that, not that it, in the, in the eyes of God, one man is, is superior to another or something like that, but just the idea that, uh, hey, you actually have uh, some people with a little bit of clout in the community that are saying, hey, these guys are right, you know, and mm-hmm. they're following him. And along with them, that's usually going to mean that other people are going to follow along, too, because they say, oh, you, you mean Dionysius and Damaris listened to him and they believe? Oh, maybe there's something to this. You know, it adds a little bit of credibility there for him and his word. Yeah, yeah. So even in Athens, the word creates fertile ground and causes people to believe. With just about a minute here, Pastor Vandercook, help us to wrap this text up. Give us a a summary of what happens in Athens, how Paul preaches there. Yeah, well, Paul comes into a a pagan city, and uh, lo and behold, he sees a lot of paganism. Uh, And he's he's stirred by that, by seeing the way that the people uh, live in that town, uh, seeing their idolatry, and uh, it's obvious from his preaching that he loves them. Uh, if he did not love them, he wouldn't have uh, said anything. He would have just kept his mouth shut and moved on. Uh, but there is a, a fine example set by Paul here of how we approach the evangelistic task as, as Christians. First, observing people, seeing the way that they live, seeing the things that they value, and then uh, eventually finding a way to use them and their experience and, and their lifestyle and the way that they live and, and trying to move toward a discussion of uh, Christ and the resurrection. Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas, helping us today with Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Uh, Thanks for having me again. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 17, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.